Good afternoon and good day. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this afternoon. And on behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm Jamie Stewart, and with me today, warmly welcomed, is Derek Sicklin from AAS Economics. Our subject for this podcast is a very broadly based one, but at the same time, it's focused on the expertise of AAS, which is very unusual and extraordinarily appropriate for what is going on around the world with all the economics and political impacts at the moment. And Derek will make that clearer than almost anybody else in the world could do. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of the best independent research providers around the world, both macro and micro, Some of them are selective stock pickers, some are sector-specific analysts, some specialize in country-specific information and research and analysis, and many are global as opposed to regional-oriented, and everybody, of course, amongst them is investment-related. It is a great pleasure that we are joined today by Derek. He is the Senior Economist of AAS Economics, um, that being the Applied Austrian School of Economics, and is one of the very few research houses which applies the Austrian School of Economic Analysis in providing in-depth assessments and reports of the financial markets and global economies, including model, long only, long and short, and multi-asset portfolios. Needless to say, particularly appropriate with what is going on at the moment in the world and what has been going on for the greater part of the last 18 months. Derek has spent more than 35 years in the financial markets, as he is at the moment as a senior economist, as a broker, as a trader, as a regional business head, and as a hedge fund manager. What more skillful and broader base could one possibly hope for? Previously, he was partner and director of Platypus Capital Management in Sydney, in Australia. Derek, a warm welcome from me and from us all. First, please regale us with a succinct, brief overview of the service that AAS Economics provides, and then it will be a great pleasure and a great privilege to delve further into those skills. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. AAS really operates on two broad platforms. The first is that we apply Austrian economics to the analysis of fundamental economic variables and asset prices. The second is we take that one step further and apply the skills that we've developed from that set of strategies into portfolio allocation advice. And so we are able to analyze the and predict the economic cycle on the one hand, and from that flows a broad stream and deep stream of research. But on the other hand, we're able to take that prediction of the cycle and convert that into specific intelligence relating to which assets are most appropriate at which stage of that economic cycle. So there are really two two components to the research that we produce. It's a very, very broadly based and very, very key relevant introduction. Thank you very much indeed for that, Derek. It triggers off a lot of questions in my mind on the, um, the part of our followers and our clients, whom we're very grateful to have with us. But can I possibly ask you on their behalf, on the behalf of all of us, given the dramatic deployment of the monetary and the fiscal policy that we've um, had over the last year or so, 
there's been a renewed interest, understandably so, in money supply. You've specialized in money supply analysis for decades. We've got the combination now of interest in central bank, of course, and in banking system funds and creating the money supply there, and the immediate impact, of course, as far as inflation and interest rates are concerned. What makes your monetary framework different from those of other economists? And how do you integrate the concept of fiscal policy into your money supply paradigm and principles? It would be very, very interesting to know your uh, view on that. Uh, yes, that's a, that's a very good question. As Austrian economists, we start from some very basic definitions and move out from those definitions. In particular, we have a particular definition, which is Austrian informed, of money. And for us, money is a medium of exchange. It's not a store of value. It's not an asset. It's a medium of exchange. And when we want to measure fluctuations in money and the money supply in an economy. It's important for us to construct a measure of the money supply, which is consistent with that definition. And in doing that, it is important that we essentially deconstruct and then reconstruct the standard components of money supply that allow us to accord with that strict definition. And so in the process, we therefore come up with an Austrian definition of the money supply. We then are able to track fluctuations in that metric of money supply, which we call adjusted money supply or AMS. We're able to track fluctuations in AMS against fluctuations in economic output variables, in inflation and price variables, and in asset price variables to look at the lags between fluctuations in AMS and fluctuations in those target variables. Um, and what we find is that firstly, it's a very, very accurate predictor of those target fluctuations. But secondly, we find that there are significant time lags between movements in AMS and movements in those variables. And those time lags firstly, vary across countries, and secondly, vary within countries vis-a-vis -vis output indicators, inflation indicators, and asset prices. So it's important to know when a country's money supply is increasing, for example, what the, lag, the general lags are economically in that country for all sorts of historical and institutional reasons, what the lags are within that country for employment growth, for GDP growth, for industrial production growth, also the lags for producer and consumer price inflation, and also the lags for asset price movements and relative asset price movements. And so what we do and what we spend most of our time analysing are the lags within each country between fluctuations in money supply growth and fluctuations in those target variables. And we then extract up to the global level to look at fluctuate at, at the different time lags between different countries to see if monetary and fiscal stimuli are aligned and synchronized to then present global or regional pressures that drive the economy. And what's important also in our calculation of AMS, adjusted money supply, is that we integrate fiscal policy into that calculation. And so when the federal government in America, for example, 
sells bonds to the Federal Reserve Board and credits its account with the, with the Fed banks, we trap in our definition those transactions. Similarly, when the US federal government draws down those accounts and starts mailing checks to people as part of fiscal stimulus, we also trap that development. And so with our unique Austrian informed definition of money supply, we are able to trap the effects of both monetary policy and fiscal policy and map out the lag between fluctuations in that and subsequent fluctuations in economic and market variables. No, thank you very much indeed for that. It's fascinating and it throws up, of course, as many questions as it does answers, which is a compliment to you because of covering so many angles of that. Derek, can you possibly put the current policy stimulus, as you see it and assess it, into a historical context, however you choose to design that context and however far into history you choose that it should go? But uh, that's obviously very relevant. I think there'd be a lot of interest in knowing what you think of that. Yes, thanks, Jamie. That's another good question. Typically, the process of monetary creation begins with the central banks intervening in the credit markets, more recently also the equity markets, and buying securities from the banking system. The reserves that are created within the banking system are then converted into loans by the banks, which then inflates the money supply. So the typical chain of causation is intervention by the central banks. That affects the commercial banks. The commercial banks then begin a process of lending. It's the classic fiat money creation. The response to the uh, economic dislocation from lockdown in 2020 provoked uh, a very aggressive response from the central banks. But importantly, that level of aggression did not match the same level of aggression that took place after the 2008 global financial crisis. In other words, although there was a very sharp increase in money supply creation engineered by the central banks, it was not as great from the central bank's perspective as it was post-GFC from 2008-2009 onwards. On the other hand, what we are seeing, particularly in the last nine months, six to nine months, has been that fiscal policy has stepped in to augment the stimulus that's hit most of the Western economies. And so, in, in, in essence, through the mechanism that I outlined earlier, governments are issuing bonds to central banks, monetizing their debt, and then distributing the processes that the proceeds of that monetization to economic agents in the economy. And so we're, what we're seeing now is that whereas the central banks are now starting to take their feet off the monetary accelerator, governments have come in through fiscal policy and they have driven money supply to levels far and beyond what would normally have been expected through central bank asset growth. So, for example, with the United States, we saw AMS growth, adjusted money supply growth, upwards of 89%, 90%, which is a record for US money supply growth. It's, it's the highest level of AMS growth since the Federal Reserve System was created in 1913, 1914. So what's interesting about the current context is that, yes, we've seen a very strong stimulus from the central banks, but the AMS growth, the money supply growth, has far exceeded the stimulus provided by those central banks. And the source of that excess has been fiscal policy from the, the various national governments. And fortunately, our measure, adjusted money supply, picks up 
both components of that stimulus. Following on from that, and the expression following on from it could be interpreted in many ways, but it would be very fascinating to know what you think. What, are, what do you think are the current trends in monetary and fiscal policy? And by, by current trends, that I could cover perhaps um, in, in the ways in which they're different from those of the past, from history, and particularly the way in which we can expect them to play out over the next 12 months. Um, it leads one to think, is the global recovery now formulated and locked in? And are all of these major economies around the world truly synchronized? Do they just appear to be, or are they genuinely synchronized in root form? Let me start with the, the last question first. The answer is that the impacts of monetary and fiscal policy, although those policies may be implemented simultaneously around the world, the impacts because of the time lags vary from country to country. And so it may be, and it is the case, that a fiscal and monetary stimulus in country one will affect country one X months later, but the same stimulus in country two will affect country two Y months later. And so what we are seeing, for example, with output measures is that in Western Europe, the time lags between AMS changes and economic output changes are around a year. In Asia, they're around a half that. In America, they're 50% longer than that. And so it's important that we map, as I mentioned earlier, the lags in each country to see how each individual economy will unfold. Having said that, what are some key features? The first is that it appears that central banks are well and truly taking their feet off the accelerator. Their balance sheet growth is much, much reduced. Uh, for example, in, in the US, the Federal Reserve balance sheet was growing at around 79.5% uh, in May of last per annum in May of last year. That's now been wound back to about 13% per annum. And as you look at central bank after central bank after central bank, it's clear that the central banks are withdrawing the stimulus that they have delivered in the second half of 2020. So that's the first part of the answer. The second is that, as I mentioned before, fiscal policy has stepped into the breach and is now if you like, the prime, prime mover of the maintenance of economic recovery. Economies now are extremely dependent on the maintenance of fiscal stimulation in order to sustain current economic growth rates. The third point that I would make is that because of the difference in time lags in the different regions, we expect that as money supply starts to roll over, as it is in many countries that I'll discuss shortly, that the effects of those will be felt first in Asia, then in Europe, then America. And so what we see at the moment is that AMS, our preferred measure of money supply, AMS growth is turning over. It's rounding over. It looks to be peaking in the Eurozone, Japan, Australia, China, Russia, South Korea, Turkey, and South Africa. It appears that there may be a peak forming in AMS in the USA, but that is yet to be confirmed. So we now can map out the likely inflection points of economic growth in each of those geographies. And it appears to us that those inflection, inflection points in Europe are converging around the second half of this year. That is, that growth should start to peak mid-year and then decelerate. In Asia, it could be before that. But in America, it may be after that. When we look at inflation, the outlook is in fact quite different. 
the lags between money supply growth and inflation growth are typically much, much longer than the lags between money supply growth and economic growth. So we have the situation where it could well be that economic growth peaks well before a peak in both producer price inflation and consumer price inflation, which raises the very unfortunate prospect that towards the end of this year and into 2022, we may see a situation of declining growth, but increasing inflation. That's remarkable because it's a very, very widespread of answers and thinking material there. Can I possibly risk coming down from the top-down level, which covers all of that, to a, a single sort of bottom-up point, which I think is attaching a lot of attention at the moment, which is that of the cryptocurrencies and the bitcoins and so on? Um, you probably got a very concise idea of this anyway, but it's something which is moving, it's relevant to what you've been saying to a certain extent. It's interesting to see what China has done recently to do with closing down its uh, relationship with cryptocurrencies in various ways. And of course, there are the minor points such as Tesla and Musk and so on, which are disturbing it as well. What's your, your view in a nutshell of uh, the relevance of cryptocurrencies in the, in the current uh, environment? Yes, it's, it's very topical. From an Austrian perspective, cryptocurrency, like fiat currency, is printed out of thin air. It's printed digitally. It has no hard asset base behind it. It is simply another form of fiat currency. Secondly, with cryptocurrency, uh, it is not money as such from an Austrian perspective because it is not a generally accepted medium of exchange. So it's not money. Um, it, has been, it is created out of thin air, as is fiat currency. It is therefore an asset. It grew out of the inflation of the money supply that was generated after the GFC in 2008. It was a reaction to that massive pumping of the money supply. And it was attempted to be an antidote to that massive monetary debasement. Um, however, given what I've just outlined, it has been, in a sense, born out of and continues to rely on that same explosion of fiat currency. And so our view on cryptocurrencies generally and I'll come back and differentiate slightly in a second, is that they currently represent an asset bubble, which, like most asset bubbles, will typically meet a rather inglorious end. There is one nuance there that I think we need to bear in mind, and that is that the cryptos that the retail sector most clearly understands, to the extent that they do, are decentralised ledger cryptocurrencies. The central banks around the world, on the other hand, are moving rapidly towards testing and rolling out centralised ledger cryptocurrencies. And you mentioned China being one of those examples. Now, it seems also to us that a decentralised, more anarchic cryptocurrency architecture is unlikely to be viewed favourably by architects of potentially a new centralised ledger cryptocurrency system engineered by the central banks. So I, I think there's a risk that not only will it, will it burst naturally, as, in, as most bubbles do, but it will run into greater regulatory hostility as we get closer to central bank digital currencies. That's remarkable. Thank you very much indeed, because that was a, a very sudden question, but I think that will attract a lot of attention what you've been able to explain to us. Can I possibly add a couple of uh, final thoughts which are important to round off what you've been kind of telling us? One is... Um, Inflation is the big word at the moment. How do you think that we're heading into what sort of inflation with what timeline at the moment? And particularly, how will it affect the bond markets, which is very important? 
because AAS economics will obviously be focusing on that. And the second point, perhaps to weave into your answers and your thoughts on that, is a slightly risk-oriented question that a lot of us are asking ourselves. Could we be heading for a major economic and market accident, in inverted commas, at the moment? Could there be something ahead which is more negative than uh, most of us have already imagined could be the case. But your views on that would be a very nice rounding off corner to what you've been able to tell us. <laughs> yes, the, the $64 trillion question. Let me begin with our outlook for inflation. And just to recap, in our analysis, both our theoretical and empirical research inclines us to the view that the lags between money supply changes and inflation are significantly longer, sometimes twice as long as the lags between money supply growth and output variables. What that means is that the impact on inflation of the massive money supply growth that we saw in the second half of 2020 is yet to really impact the economies of the world, which means that we are, in our view at least, in the relatively early stages of a considerable period of reasonably severe inflation. When we correlate our inflation leading indicators based on money supply with producer price indices and consumer price indices, the outlook is for one of considerable inflation, certainly towards the end of this, this year and possibly well into 2022. We would look for an end to that process if and when we saw a significant peak in adjusted money supply growth globally. Uh, we are starting to see that peak in a number of the countries that I described earlier. It is not yet in place for the US. And so our view is that uh, at least for the, the remainder of this year and well into 2022, we see the likelihood of a significant increase in inflation, even from current levels. Uh, what is important to look for are those lags, country by country, and also when we see a peak, a confirmed peak in money supply growth, because that will tell us when the peak in inflation is likely to, likely to arrive. As to your question on bond markets, uh, with bond markets, it's clear from our analysis that in line with this projected rise in inflation, we see significant increases in yield curve, the slopes of yield curves in every country that we look at. So we see significant further increases from here in bond yield curves. Um, so that is not, given what has happened to bonds over the last six months, that is not good news for global sovereign debt markets. Uh, and as to your fi the final part of your question, are we in for a serious economic accident? I think there is a real risk that in an environment of significant debt overhang, particularly government debt overhang, where we are likely to see significant increases in measured price inflation, where bond yields are likely to continue to rise, uh, there is a significant risk of a tightening by central banks in interest rate policy. And I think that that combination of potentially declining output growth, rising prices at both the input and the output level, rising bond yields, and a tightening of conditions by central banks in tandem with highly inflated asset prices, particularly property and stocks, I think all the components are there for something that could go at least reasonably wrong, if not horribly wrong. So we're not, that's not an official forecast yet. We are still monitoring both the slope of money supply curves and the potential peaks, but the indications are at this stage 
that all the components of stars apparently are aligning for some form of accident, perhaps in early 20 or mid-2022. Yeah. Well, you've done a remarkable job there, and I feel guilty having asked rather complicated questions, but I think that's probably um, representing what's in a lot of minds. But I'd very much like to round off the fantastic um, overview that you've created for us by thanking you very, very much indeed. You've done a fantastic job there, Derek, with the, the thinking and with the expertise of AAS behind you, and I think that there are a number of people from, um, from IRF who will be delighted to have been able to hear those um, answers coming. Thank you very much for that, and on behalf of Independent Research Forum, I'd like to thank you for the time and the additional research um, and the expertise that you put forward for everybody today. It really is very much appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jamie, and thank you for the opportunities to speak to your audience.